the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. Pay careful attention. This is God's holy word. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather together stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us give thanks to God. Father, I ask you to be with us this morning and illuminate your word to our minds and hearts for comfort, wisdom, and encouragement. Help us, O Lord, to number our days and walk faithfully all the days that you have given to us to serve you under the sun. Guard my words. Bless my efforts to communicate your word. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Last March, I preached an introductory sermon on the book of Ecclesiastes, and we covered chapters 1 and 2, and this morning we're going to be moving on to chapter 3. Of course, doing a series through a book that's separated by many months is a bit of a challenge, but of course we just finished the book of Revelation, it took us 20 months with multiple series in between, so I think we're pretty much accustomed to this kind of rhythm. But since it has been uh, several months since the last sermon, and because I can see some new faces here that probably weren't there at the time, I am going to do a bit of an extended summary of that first sermon before we hit chapter 3. You know, Christians often neglect or skim over the book of Ecclesiastes because with a superficial reading of the book, it can sound quite discordant from the rest of Scripture. In fact, it can sound almost hopeless or cynical. Some cast an interpretive lens on the book of Ecclesiastes such that it, it, it boils down to, here's the book in the Bible that tells us what not to think. Or, or perhaps they say, the meaning of Ecclesiastes is found in the very last chapter, in the last verses where it says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all, this is the duty of man, as if everything else in the book is in contrast to that last concluding statement. That approach it misses the profound wisdom of this whole book and its essential message. And if you understand what this book is really about, that if you, if you understand the, the real meaning of Ecclesiastes, then it becomes perhaps one of the most practical books in the Bible for that which occupies the most of our time every single day because it has to do with our work, our toil. We work five days out of every week, or if you're more biblical, you work six days out of every week. And of those days, we work the majority of them, eight hours or so in the modern age. Throughout history, though, people pretty much worked as long as it was light outside. And since Ecclesiastes takes a deep dive into our relationship to toil, which takes up so much of our time, it's really a shame that we study this book so little. As we began the introduction into the book of Ecclesiastes, we encountered the main idea, the main thesis question that Solomon pursues throughout the whole book right there in chapter 1, verse 3. It says, What profit has a man from all of his labor in which he toils under the sun? This 
is the question. This is what Solomon is after throughout the whole book. He's fixated on this theme. What gain, what benefit, what do we get to keep out of all of this toil in which we toil under the sun? Now, if you're going to understand the message of Ecclesiastes, you really do have to take note of that last little phrase there because it defines the context under which he pursues this question, under the sun. Solomon is strictly looking at what can be learned, what can be gained about our toil with respect to our lives here on earth, from cradle to grave. That's his limit. He doesn't speculate about what comes next. He's not denying eternity, of course, but for important reasons, he's limiting his scope of inquiry to what can be known about what we gain from our toil here and now. And so in the last sermon where we covered the first two chapters, we reflected on the ways in which he pursued an answer to these questions. He looked at four different areas. He pursued it in four different ways, and I described those four different ways as, as four wrestling matches that he undertook, in all of which he got pummeled. The first wrestling match is with nature, and we observe from, chapters, uh, from verses 4 uh, through 11, Solomon observes nature, and he notices the circularity of it, that one generation follows after another, that the sun goes around and around, setting and rising day after day, that rivers flow endlessly into the ocean, but that the ocean is never full. Winds just keep circulating from south to north on its circuits. Time marches on without end, season after season, calendar rotating year after year. And all of this circularity, this eternality of nature, he compares to his life, which is just a segment, a starting point and an ending point. And compared to the, to the length of nature, to the eternality of nature, it's just a short little segment. And so he despairs because whatever answer he might come up with in light of nature, it's going to be so brief and small as to be completely insignificant. So he abandons that approach and he moves on to pursuing an answer to his question just in his own human rationality. Can he look within and find some kind of an answer that would bring meaning to his toil? And so he pursues uh, philosophy. And every way he tries to think about it, he runs into roadblock after roadblock. And at every dead end, he gets increasingly grieved. He loses to nature. He loses to his own ability to rationalize. And then he says, well, maybe I can find meaning in what I produce out there in the world. He looks to his accomplishments. And in chapter 2, the rest of chapter 2, he goes on to test pleasure, to test what he can gain out of food and wine. He engages in building projects. He builds a palace. He builds a temple. He, ha he acquires vast amounts of wealth of silver and gold. He has servants throughout his household. He engages in the arts and produces music and architectural marvels with his gardens. But regardless of what he creates, no matter what he produces, he comes to the same conclusion. And he says in chapter 2, verse 11, Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Then he came to his fourth match, which was the toughest of all, because here he contended with death itself. And so from 12 down through 23, he just recognizes that the fact that no matter, no matter what answer he comes up with, in the end he dies. And so what is it going to matter? What's he going to gain? And he concludes finally in chapters, uh, in verses 21 to 23, for there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity and a great evil, 
For what has man for all his labor, and for the striving of his heart with which he has toiled under the sun? For all of his days are sorrowful, and his work burdensome, and even in the night his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. Couldn't come up with an answer. Couldn't find it in nature. Couldn't find it within. Couldn't find it from his accomplishments. And should he even get some kind of a glimmer, soon he's going to be dead, and then what point will there be? And all of this seeking and finding no answer, it, it vexed him. It practically drove him mad. All of his searchings were striving after the wind. That was his first answer, that there is no lasting benefit to all of our toil. He says, everything is vanity. But while his first answer may be nothing, that all is vanity, that wasn't his ultimate answer. There is an ultimate answer, but if you want to understand it, you're first going to have to understand something about that word itself, vanity, this key term that echoes throughout the entire book. The word here, vanity, or it might be in your translations, futile or meaningless, perhaps, that word it doesn't necessarily have to have such negative connotations. It really just means, in Hebrew, elusive, misty, vaporous, something ungraspable. Now, if you attempt to grasp something ungraspable, your efforts will indeed be futile. Or if you try to define something that's undefinable, then you will end up with meaninglessness. But just because something is hebel, just because it's vaporous or misty, doesn't necessarily mean that that is a terrible thing or a negative thing. And the ambiguous nature of this term becomes a linchpin, a point, a hinge on the, on, of, a, of a door that opens up Solomon's deeper and more ultimate answer. What does man gain from all his toil under the sun? And we get to that answer, finally, at the very end of chapter 2. He says, Nothing is better for a man that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Solomon discovered that if we cease striving if we give up on our demands to make some lasting impact, and instead, if we focus on simply enjoying our toil, then, and only then, we can receive this gift of God, the grace to experience joy and contentment in our toil, as well as the simple blessings that accompany our productive toil. When we receive God's gift, rather than insisting on rewards based on our toil, we find joy. We find contentment in our assigned lot in life. But we must submit to God's limits. We must submit to the limits he places on us if we're to enjoy this more ultimate blessing. This second deeper answer is found here at the end of chapter 2, but it's also found in chapter 3, which we're going to see today, and also in chapters 5, 8, 9, 10, and 11. Solomon continues for 12 chapters to explore his thesis turning it over, examining it from every angle, prodding it, challenging it, applying it to all different circumstances we face under the sun, yet he comes back to the same basic answer every single time. In order to find out meaning in our toil under the sun, we must redirect 
our ambitions from a rigorous pursuit of impact, accomplishment, lasting output, measuring its magnitude and expansion, leave those aspects to God, and instead, if we make our primary focus the pursuit of enjoyment and contentment in the toil itself, and enjoying the simple blessings that accompany it, that's the gift of God. This is the gain and the blessing under the sun. Now, this ultimate answer of Solomon, it's, it's pretty simple to understand. Enjoy your toil. Enjoy the eating and drinking that are derived from it. That's pretty simple. But you know what? It's not at all easy to maintain. And so as Solomon examines his thesis over and over and comes at it from all different sides, he begins to address all of the kinds of barriers that we face in our pursuit of enjoying our toil under the sun. He identifies many enemies, circumstances, struggles, setbacks, evils that threaten to undermine our contentment and joy in the toil God has assigned. And if we get deceived or distracted by these adversaries, we will quickly lose our joy and contentment and rather will be worked up into anxiety and madness and vexation. You see, simply understanding the answer is not enough. In order for us to maintain this gift of peace and contentment, this fragile joy in our toil, we must fend off many enemies that threaten it. And so, as we continue in our book of Ecclesiastes this morning, we're going to learn how to stand against one of those common enemies that assault our peace and contentment. We're going to see what Solomon has to say to give us some ballast against the storms of life. And the particular adversary that he addresses here is time itself. Time itself. I already began uh, by reading the first half of the chapter, which begins, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. It is a, it's a beautiful passage, really. Someone should write a song about it, I think. <laughs> but while it's beautiful, it's also stark in its realism. Because every joyful season is matched by its dark twin. Life under the sun is not all feasting and laughing. There are times of weeping. There are times of war. There are times to cast stones away or to refrain from embracing. Our days are numbered, and among them will be evil days, days of loss, days when silence, mourning, and weeping are appointed for us. We must not pretend otherwise. If we just fast forward a bit and look at chapter 7, a couple verses in chapter 7, there's a passage here that speaks of the variability of the kinds of days we're going to experience under the sun. Verses 13 and 14, it says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider, surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. On any given day, we may be enjoying all the blessings of God. Sun is shining, uh, our work is productive and profitable, our marriage is stable and joyful, our children are obedient and growing, and the very next we can be rocked by a tragedy. And there's no way to insulate ourselves from such days. God has appointed one as well as the other. And how we receive the variability of these seasons of life, the rhythm of good and bad days, will either bolster or undermine our ability to maintain joy and contentment 
in our toil. If we're able to get God's perspective on time and submit to his purposes in shaping it, then we will be able to preserve our peace, resist anxiety, and remain steadfast in the Lord, even when the mountains shake, even when the seas roar. But if we do not learn how to navigate these, nav- uh, these variable days and weeks and years, then we may well be robbed of the grace and gift of God. We'll be robbed of our joy and toil and the simple enjoyment of its blessings. Now, I want you to take note of that last little bit in verse uh, 714 that says, God makes some things crooked. He appoints adversity specifically so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. That refrain is repeated throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to see it again in our chapter, and we're going to return to it in a moment, but just put a pin in it for now. But, but I wonder, do you struggle with the idea that God appoints adversity, that he appoints evil days in order to accomplish his purposes? Does the idea of receiving evil from God not compute with your theology? Well, you might want to consider Job 2.10 and Amos 3.6. In Job 2.10, after he's experienced all of the, the trials and struggles and pains, and his wife tells him to curse God and die, says, but he said to her, thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? And then the author adds, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. It's not as if he was exasperated and at the end of his rope and just said something crazy. No, he did not sin. He said something true. Or Amos 3.6, shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in the city and the Lord hath not done it? These, among many passages in Scripture, speak of the ways that God superintends, even appoints evil in his greater plans to accomplish good. Passages like these reveal that God's designs include bitter providences and evil days. And we must be ready to face evil times and not flinch, but hold fast our contentment as we trust in the Lord in the midst of an evil day. Times of sorrow and suffering are unavoidable. But our relationship to such times is not one of hopelessness or despair. On the contrary, all of our sufferings are appointed with, to us with glorious ends in mind. So he goes through all these various times uh, in life, and then he jumps right back to his thesis question again. What profit has the worker from all that in which he labors? He asks himself, if life inevitably consists of unpredictable ups and downs that we must experience seasons of planting as well as plucking up, killing as well as healing, breaking as well as building, of being born as well as dying, then what's the point? What can we possibly hope to gain, to benefit from, to keep if we must cycle through such variable conditions throughout our days under the sun? Well, we can fixate on the variability of time. We can live in anxiety anticipating evil days. But if we live that way, we will be discouraged. But one of the answers to the question of how do we live in the face of variable days comes in verse 10. He says, I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. Are to be occupied. God has given us the gift of toil in part to keep us occupied, to keep us distracted from fixating on evil thoughts. 
you'll find the same notion in chapter 5, verse 20. He says essentially uh, the same thing. He says, For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life, because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. Dwelling on darkness under the sun, it's never healthy. It's never healthy. Now, uh, if you encounter some really terrible providence, some great tragedy, you're probably going to need some time off from work, recuperate, recover, um, so forth. But you know what? Getting back to work is one of the healthiest things you can do when you've experienced a bitter day of adversity. We need to be occupied. Our minds and our thoughts and our emotion, emotions, they can get reset by getting back into the rhythms of work. And if we do, over time, we can recover that sense of beauty that God has designed into the big picture, despite the fact that the overall image does contain dark shadows. When we stick with God's program and get back to our allotted work, then we'll soon be able to reflect on God's greater design. After all, as it says in verse 11, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. If we stay focused on God's purposes and trust His intentions, we can be set free from distressing fixations, from anxious thoughts, and from grief. Toil is a blessing to those facing grief, as well as a blessing to those enjoying fruitful, productive seasons. God means for us to be occupied regularly, most of the time, with our God-given tasks. And when we remain faithfully at our posts, doing our duty, engaging in our allotted toil, then we will have ballast that we need to take on those seasons of of variability in stride and not fear the evil day. Now, if you remember when we looked at 7 verse 14, I asked you to put a pin in that idea, that phrase, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. We find the exact same expression here. So that man can find out nothing after him. In verse 11, it says, no one will be able to find out the work of God from beginning to end. God has not invited us into the secret counsel of his will. Rather, he tells us to stop striving. Stop insisting that we figure everything out. And instead... Work, eat, drink, and enjoy the good of your labor. And that's what he says. Again, he comes to that main answer verse, in verse 12. I know that, there is nothing, that, there is, that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be has already been, and God requires an account of that which is past. You see, part of God's purposes in sending an evil day, part of his reasons for bending things in a way that we can't straighten them, is to keep us in our lanes. We must not second-guess God. Rather, we are to fear him and to remember who it is to whom we must give an account of all of our works. But of course, we need to remember that while God God warns us not to attempt to decipher everything that he's doing under the sun from beginning to end, he is doing something under the sun from beginning to end. Whatever God does shall be forever. Nothing can be added or taken from it. 
We can't know in our tiny sliver of life, in this small patch of ground in which we live, in the few days that we exist under the sun, we cannot figure that out. But God does have a purpose and a plan, and he has graciously included us in it, but not in such a way that we get to see the whole big picture. He is deliberately keeping that from us. Therefore, if we're going to, remain, if we're going to maintain joyful contentment in our toil, we must, in humility, accept the constraints that are applied to us in this book. We have to stay focused on our work, enjoying it by grace, and giving thanks as we partake of the simple pleasures and benefits that we derive from our toil and productivity. Now, as we move on in chapter 3, uh, Solomon introduces a bit of a, of a new subject here in, in verse 16. Uh, he's, he's introducing something that is forecasting a topic that he's going to take up in a bit more detail in chapter 4. But here, he, he, in verse 16, he says, Moreover, I saw under the sun, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time and for, for, there for every purpose and for every work. So in chapter 4, Solomon is going to kind of take on a, a, a new challenge to our uh, to our joy and contentment and toil, uh, that topic of, of oppression or of injustice. But he, he introduces it here. He, he forecasts it here. And this is representative of something Solomon does a lot in this book, the way that he structures it. It's, it's, it's not a simple structure. He's, he's analyzing his question from all of these different perspectives. He has all of these questions he applies to each perspective. And then as he moves from another perspective, he takes the same questions. And so it's overlapping and interwoven, making it very complex. It also really resists a really nice, neat three-point sermon outline, I've discovered. Um, but it also makes this book compelling and rich and textured, like a beautiful medieval tapestry. But what he has to say here, um, as he introduces this topic of injustice, is that wherever he looks, in the places of judgment, in the places of righteousness, in the very courts, in the temple, there was wickedness and there was iniquity. And when the very systems and institutions that are intended to promote justice and preserve righteousness, when they themselves act corruptly, this always results in suffering in the world. This always results in days of evil. Just like we read um, or sang this morning in Psalm 94, shall the throne of iniquity which devises evil by law have fellowship with you? They gather together against the life of the righteous and condemn innocent blood. Among the variable seasons and the evil days that we it will experience under the sun, there will be some evil days caused by injustice, particularly when the very institutions designed to preserve justice inflict it. Unjust laws... Laws that disregard God's limits that he set for all kings and all lawmakers, human laws that defy God's law, they wreak havoc in people's lives. And you know, if you trace out the effects of these kinds of injustices to the end, you'll find that it's almost always the poorest and the most vulnerable who are hurt the worst, that experience the most evil. We live in a day, don't we? where we could list off thousands of ways in which injustice and wickedness and oppression are devised by our very laws. The legalization and protection of the murder of babies, clearly the most grievous of all. But there are many more. There's the theft of a person's right to their toil, their fundamental right to their own toil. 
We've stolen it and said, you may not sell it unless it matches a certain wage that some bureaucrats set over there as a minimum. You rob people of their own toil. Or we rob our children and children's children by establishing social programs that provide benefits to people today that will be paid for by our children and children's children. And they don't get to vote on it. You could go on and on, of course. When you trace out the impacts and the effects of these acts of wickedness, where righteousness ought to be found, you will always find that they disproportionately hurt the poorest, the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan. These are eaten up by such injustices. These are, as Solomon says, a grievous evil under the sun. And we need to, and we ought to fight against such evil and oppression. We ought to be seeking peace and justice, and we need to pursue it. But if we do, as we do, especially if our particular work and calling happens to be uh, in the realm of politics, we have to engage that toil in the, with the exact same limits that Solomon places on all toil. We must pursue it with humility. God imposes limits on all of our toil. He will judge the righteous and the wicked in his time. There's a time for every purpose, a time for that too. So whether your work is educating children or building websites or fighting for policy change at the legislature, whatever the toil may be, we must engage in it faithfully and joyfully, leaving the ultimate results in the hands of God. And so as Solomon concludes his section focusing on, on time, he leaves us with a test. He leaves us with a test in verse 18. I said in my heart, concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them, that they may see that they themselves are like animals. Solomon points out here that there's a similarity between us and the animals, which is similarly, which is designed by God to be a test. So what is this? What's the similarity? How, how is this a test? Verse 19, for what happens to the sons of men also happens to the animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and all return to dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of animals, which goes down to the earth? The similarity here is that we die, just like the animals. From an under-the-sun perspective, we die because we stop breathing. Our hearts stop beating. Our blood stops circulating just like an animal. And our remains experience decay, just like an animal. We're all made of dust, and when we die, dust is returned to the earth. From this limited point of view, and on this single point of similarity, we can't claim any advantage over the animals. We're meant to be tested and sobered by this. The weight of the book of Ecclesiastes is only felt when we first accept the fact that our lives are a vapor, they pass quickly. And soon, they'll have no remembrance. This sober reality should lead us to question what is the point of it all, as Solomon did. And this outward comparison between the identical effects of death on us and the animals is a symbol, a constant symbol of this reality. In framing the question and laying out this test, Solomon, he's not saying um, that he's ignorant of or ambivalent to what happens to our souls after death. He knows that we ultimately return to God and we face judgment. He says so in chapter 12, 17 at the end. Then dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. 
He understands eternal accountability. But in framing the question this way, he focuses on what happens to our bodies here under the sun when we die and the identical nature between our physical death and that of the animals. It's an important lesson. In fact, it's the exact same lesson that we read in Psalm 49, which I'm going to read, and you're going to hear so many echoes in Ecclesiastes from this psalm and and the same point that he's trying to make with respect to this text. So if you turn to Psalm 49, I'm just going to read through it, and you're you're going to hear it. Psalm 49, hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together, My mouth shall speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will disclose my dark saying on the harp. Why should I fear in the days of evil? There it is. There's our question. When the iniquity at my my heel surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever, that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. For he sees wise men die, likewise the fool and the senseless person perish, and leave their wealth to others. That was chapter 2. Their inner thoughts is that their houses will last forever, their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, though in honor, does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. Same exact lesson, same exact warning. This is the way of those who are foolish and of their posterity who approve their sayings. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave for he shall receive me. Do not be afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Though while he lives, he blesses himself, for men will praise you when you do well for yourself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. A man who is in honor, yet does not understand, is like the beasts that perish. We have the exact same test spelled out for us here in Psalm 49. Those who do not give heed to this warning, those who do not understand that under the sun we are like the beasts that perish, we fail the test. And if we fail the test, if we fail to understand this lesson, then when we do, when our souls do return to the Lord for judgment, it will be for condemnation and eternal corruption. But for those who do regard the test and accept the boundaries that God sets, Those who trust in the Lord, these God will redeem. These God will receive. And, of course, while Ecclesiastes, for very specific reasons, is limited in its context, the whole Bible isn't that way. And and when we look beyond the book of Ecclesiastes and we see the full light of the gospel in Christ, we have even greater hope that God will receive us. We have an even greater anchor for the soul to face evil days. As it says in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, 
a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have every reason, every confidence to hold fast our hope, even when we face an evil day. Why should we be anxious about tomorrow or hopeless about the future? Why should we follow the example of the world and cower in fear at every whisper of danger? Why should we fear the rage of the mob who vainly tear down the works of others? Why should we be neurotic and unstable? Why should we be disordered and depressed? We have a God who calls us to faith and trust in a Savior who has made all things new. We have a God who works in a way that nothing can be added and nothing taken. His plans and His purposes will stand forever. And so, how should we stand and act in an evil day? The same way we act every other day. Verse 22, So I perceived that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? The message of Ecclesiastes is ballast to our souls. We toil and we work, we plant and we build, and over the course of our lives we laugh and dance and we embrace and also weep and mourn and die But even in our mourning, we don't mourn like the world that has no hope. No, we mourn boldly. We weep confidently. We lose, but in losing, we gain all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us such strong and perfect foundation in Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us simple and clear instructions about how we're to go about our assigned work under the sun. Please keep the simple lesson clear in our minds. And help us to meditate on your works that we might not get carried away in an evil day. But rather, preserve our confidence, maintain our joy, and and help us to trust you for our lives, for our children's lives, for our children's children. We give you thanks for the blessings with with which you have blessed us in Jesus Christ our Lord. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.